Amen. Wonderful singing this morning and a great time of worship as uh, we are singing to the audience of one. That is our God who is worthy of our praise. Would you join me this morning in taking your Bibles to John chapter 1? We're going to go to John chapter 1. Here in the Gospel of John, we are going to see the very beginning moments of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And John chapter 1 really sets the stage for his ministry. In the very beginning part of John chapter 1, we are learning right away about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in man form, that he is every bit of God, every bit of man. Later in the chapter, as it kind of teaches and goes through these thoughts of incarnation, then we have the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. He comes onto the stage, and John the baptizer is proclaiming a message that is preparing the way for the arrival and ministry of his cousin, Jesus Christ. And so you study here in John chapter 1, and you see a very bold message from John, John the baptizer. As he gives this message and proclamation, it rattles the cages of the religious leaders. They really do not like what he is saying and who he is and what authority he stands on. But their problems are only just beginning for something very radical is about to happen as the ministry of Jesus begins to take place. Now, when we think of the ministry of Jesus, something that parallels right away in our minds is usually the thought of his disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ. And we think about these men as his friends, as his students, as uh, his traveling partners. They, they got to, to see his miracles firsthand. They heard his teachings. They experienced his ministry day in and day out for three and a half years. And so often when we think of Jesus the adult, we quickly think about the 12 disciples. But remember, they were only together for three and a half years. Now, in those times, uh, were very important times of establishing the local church, something of the church going to all parts of the world to reach with the gospel. And so this was the training ground that Jesus was going to use to pour into these men. When we get to John chapter 1, we begin seeing in verse 43, 44, 45, somewhere in that range, how there are two disciples that were followers of John the baptizer, and Jesus now has come onto the scene, and John has, is almost as if he is handing off these two disciples to say, that's him. That's who we've been talking about. That's we have prepared the way. It is time now to go. And so these two men, as the text gives us, one is unnamed. Bible scholars believe that was probably John, not John the baptizer, but this was probably John who wrote the gospel of John. Many times throughout his writing, he would list himself as the unnamed disciple. And so Bible scholars believe that this first one was John, the writer of the gospel and the disciple. And then the next, as the text says, was Andrew. So these two men hear the words of Jesus when he says, come and follow me. And so these men follow after Jesus. Now, what does Andrew do with this, this change in his life? Well, he goes and he tells his brother, Peter. He says, we have found the Messiah. Come and see. And so Peter comes and Jesus transforms his life. And now Jesus has made Peter a follower of him. Now, the verse transitions to our text as we get into verse 43, 44, 45. We come through this last part of the text, and we see two new disciples that Jesus is going to encounter. Now, before he's even had any of this interaction, remember, uh, there was this baptism that took place. It was John the baptizer baptizing Jesus, and uh, John said, I am not even worthy to touch the latchets of your sandals, let alone baptize you. But Jesus said, no, you're the man in the Jordan River, and let's get baptized. And you remember the verse 
in Matthew 3, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, he went straight up out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Verse 17, And lo, a voice from heaven. It was the voice of God the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had given the example of being baptized by immersion, coming up out of the water, showing the example of the the soon-to-come death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness to pray and to fast. And at the end of his time there, the dirty scoundrel, the devil, shows up. And you remember, he tempts him in three different ways. Remember what Hebrews reminds us, that for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the infirmities, the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the eyes, the, the, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. All points that we are tempted. He too was tempted, but he overcame the temptation by quoting Scripture. He used the Old Testament text to fight and combat right in the face of the devil and to find victory over temptation. That's why the psalmist would even write that we quote and memorize, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. In our Christian journey, in our Christian life, those trigger verses that give us victory are so important to chew on, meditate on, to have in our hearts something that we can run to, something that becomes of of an acquaintance or, or a passion with our Savior over showing love and loyalty to our flesh. And so after this time in the wilderness, Jesus now goes and he meets these disciples He meets Peter and Andrew and Bethsaida. He travels to a new region called Galilee, and he meets yet another man. The name is Philip. And as he meets Philip, he calls Philip to be his disciple. So Philip had a lot of things, fishermen, just like the rest of them that were in Bethsaida. And and, uh, so Philip had a lot of things going well for him. But he made a decision right there, spot on, that he would leave those things behind. Any security he had... And he would follow after this Jesus who has said, come and follow me. Can you imagine the power of the words of Jesus as he would look into the eyes of Philip? Can you imagine the submissive obedience of Philip in willingly following after Jesus? You've got to remember a little something about Philip's personality. You remember in John chapter 6, we see the story. This is t- sometime later from our text. And what happens is, is there's 5,000 plus people. You know the story. And they have been taught by Jesus. And now comes the time where they're hungry. And they either need to be sent home to their town to eat or somebody needs to feed them. And by saying, says, what is this among so many? Philip responds first by saying, Jesus, look at this crowd. I'll paraphrase. He said, 200 days worth of wages cannot buy enough bread to feed this crowd. Doubt in his mind. That's his natural personality. So when you think about Philip in this moment, Philip is being called by Jesus to follow after him. Out of place of the words of Jesus. Now remember, Jesus never spoke anything out of place. He never wasted any words. Whatever he spoke was full of purpose. And so Philip goes. Now Philip's response is going to be that he is going to go and find a friend. He's not going to sit there and and, uh, just take it all in for himself. He is going to now go and find somebody else. So that's where I want us to pick up in our text this morning. 
This life-changing moment causes Philip to go and find someone else to tell about the Savior. Would you look in John chapter 1, verse number 43? The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. He findeth Philip, and he saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. They were all fishermen. Bethsaida was a fisherman town. So Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. It is the Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite in thou me is no guile nathaniel saith unto him whence knowest thou me jesus answered and said unto him before that philip called thee when thou wast under the fig tree i saw thee nathaniel answered and saith unto him rabbi teacher master thou art the son of god thou art the king of israel and jesus answered and said unto him because i said unto thee i saw thee under the fig tree believest thou <laughs> Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This morning we look at this text, and I want us to look at something of the church, but it is not go to church. It's church, go for the importance you need your wisdom and direction this morning. Lord, I thank you for the importance you put on the local body of believers, the local church. We have a responsibility this morning as we have gathered to put our worship and our adoration to you. This is not about us. It's not about our desires. It's not about our preferences. It is about you today. So, Father, we have done our part in worshiping. We have prepared our hearts, and now we come open and ready to hear of your message ears would be open to your truths. Bless us now and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the truth is, is that there's a trap that we tend to fall into when we get into a pattern of going to church regularly. We back up and look at it and view it as quite an accomplishment. From the very early stages of our Christianity, when we first trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we were taught the importance of being in church a place where we can learn, a place where we can connect, a place where we can grow, a place where we can worship. I'm reminded of Hebrews 10.25 when it says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. The day will come where the church of God will be raptured. The day is quickly coming when life here on earth will be done. And our goal and motive here on earth is not to build up the toys and trinkets in our stash. It's not to live our life with all of our, our goals, ambitions, and passions as our main theme. But it is that we would gather as the church. That we would grow together. We would unify together. We would worship together. We would connect together. And that God would be glorified because of that. Now we live in a day where there's a lot of distractions. There are a lot of outside distractions that keep us from being together. There are some times, but there are other times in our life where we choose other things 
before assembling together with God's local church. And we make that as a very conscientious decision. And parents, by the way, you have a generation behind you that is watching you. And don't be shocked one day if they don't make God a priority in their life because they watched a mom and dad who never made God a priority in their life. And so here, the message this morning is not about going to church, but rather we're looking at something very important about how the church must be ready to go. We look at this time together as a pep rally. We look at this time together as a growth moment. We are charged, we are instructed, and we are convicted, and we are shaped and changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And we don't just sit on that. We take it and we go. That's what Philip did. Now, unfortunately, in this day, I saw this week, Judah Smith, he's a popular pastor in Seattle, Washington, and he has just announced the new way to do church. It's in the palm of your hand. They are unveiling this new church, new way of doing church, like we need yet one more thing to have to do in the palm of our hand with our devices. Now you can go to church in your living room by just watching it on the phone. Well, the truth is, is that someone responded and said, the last thing the body of Christ needs is more people isolating themselves. We don't need a new way to do church. Isolation from the body of Christ breeds confusion and spiritual deficiency. The statistics are very plain and clear that when somebody in the church disconnects from a connection group and they're not a part of a ministry team, it's not long before they'll find themselves out the back door and sitting on their couch or sitting in their boat or swinging their club or doing something else that is self-consumed on a Sunday morning. So the message today, it takes a little bit of a turn here. As we looked at this title, it's not that we're saying quit going to church, but it is saying that when we come, we need to be willing to go and make a difference. Now this morning, I want us to see a few things. How the gospel devours the lies that we tell ourselves. In this passage of scripture, I believe there are three lies that we often will, will tell ourselves, but the gospel changes all of that direction. The first lie is, I don't have anything to say. You see what happened in verse number 45? Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him. He definitely had something to say. Isn't this what keeps our conversations out of the picture altogether? I mean, too often we're afraid that we just don't have anything worth saying. Or when we get into a pattern of not speaking to others... When we don't have conversation with other people, when we don't inquire about their day or we don't inquire about their life or we're not interested in who they are or what's going on in their life, we begin to develop patterns of a closed door mentality that says, when I'm out in public, I just don't look at people. I just don't talk to people. I don't smile. I don't make any contact with anybody because I'm just not interested in their life. I'm not interested in them. That's a completely different picture, though, of what the church is to go and do. Because the church goes from here. Beyond the structure of the church building, we are the church as the people. And we're commissioned to go and to speak the truth of the gospel. We are to tell others that Jesus loves them. We are to tell others of the transformation that happens in our life. That's where Philip is. Philip just simply says, we have found him, something has drastically changed. 
Something is so exciting for Philip. Now, Philip's life had been changed, and he wanted his friend Nathaniel to know that he could experience this very same story of grace. So how does the gospel devour the lie to tell others when we think we don't have anything to say? Here's the answer. Speak. The answer to that lie is the gospel says, speak from your heart. You have a story to tell. You have amazing work that has happened in your life. You have seen answers to prayer. You have seen steps of faith. You have seen transformation take a hold of who you are. And you have something to share. You see, Philip adopted the Lord's own words when he said to Nathaniel, Come and see. Jesus used that same phraseology with Andrew and John. He used it with Philip. He would later say, come and drink. He would say, come and dine. Then now here we see that the great invitation of God's grace is simply put, come. Just come. Now, we find here that this lie says you don't have anything to say, but we do have something to say. So speak from your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to guide your words. Here's the second excuse or lie that we try to tell ourselves that the gospel is just going to devour. We say that their attitude will be combative. Well, look at Nathaniel. Because in verse number six, uh, 46, he sees the excitement of his friend Philip, but he pretty much smirks at it. He says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see, one of our biggest hurdles to going is the fear that we fight within our heart and in our mind. The reality of fear, it's there and it holds us back. We don't know how they're going to respond. What will they say? Will I offend them? Understand, Christian, the gospel is offensive in itself. So let's not play the other part and be offensive to them. So we just share the gospel. We just share the good news. We share with joy in our heart. If they have a combative spirit, if they have a rejection, a rejecting attitude, if they have something harsh to say, we don't respond back and say, well, I hope you burn in hell then for the rest of your life. That's not really the best way to approach the gospel. That's really not how we express the love of Christ. Now, I know sometimes in, uh, we like to defend our anger toward people. We like to call it righteous anger from James chapter 1. We also, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, we also like to defend our anger by saying, well, Jesus walked into the temple mount and he overthrew the tables and whipped the people and cast them out and had his, his moment. Yes, but you're not Jesus, okay? And so let's remember that your righteous anger has to be in check. Oftentimes we lash out at other people because they've affected our pride. They've hurt us. We've taken... I didn't see that coming. Boldness, and they've come right back with something snarky, and we're like, ooh, okay, I didn't see that coming. I think, well, I've got something good to say to them, and we just go right back at it. That's not displaying the love of Jesus. So when we try to use this lie that says their attitude is going to be combative, understand how Philip simply responded. Because Nathaniel had this strong disapproval for Nazareth. Remember, Nazareth was not even recorded in any of the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so he's thinking that, what is this? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, are you serious about this? And Philip just simply replies, and he says, come and what? See. 
oh, I love that. Too often we think that our words should be so powerful that just by the way I put my sentences should just bring you to tears and bring you to great conviction that you can't do anything but cry out for repentance. But the reality is, is Philip saw this combative spirit. He saw an, an, an issue here, uh, a, a false assumption of this Jesus. And so Philip basically said, okay, but I want you to do me something. I want you to come and see it. You know, sometimes we think our words are the only thing that people will ever hear or see. But our life speaks so much louder than our words ever will. How your coworkers see you respond to management. How your neighbor sees you respond to the other neighbor that the whole neighborhood is aggravated with. How your wife sees you respond in the home. How your kids see you respond to them. How people will see you respond in public. You understand that your life, your actions speak much louder than your words will ever speak. And so here he said, just come and experience. Come and see the change. Come and see the miracles. Come and experience the grace. Come and take a part of something amazing. So the answer here is that we have to remember that an unchanged or an unregenerate heart speaks and acts out of insecurity. And when we look at where Philip finds Nathaniel, Nathaniel is under a fig tree. Now, when you study 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25 and Micah 4, 4, both of these texts speak of the fig tree as a place of safety. The Jews would have used this as a place where they would hunker down, where they would do some things. They would study. Uh, they would find shade. They would find comfort. They would find security from the beating. The greater security that would be found only in Jesus Christ. So people have a hard time coming to grips with the reality that we have all fallen short of God's glory. You know, that's not a very popular statement in today's culture. For us to say that mankind has fallen short of the glory of God and that there is nothing that we can do in our own power to achieve the approval of God, people don't want to hear that. Because they're used to climbing the corporate ladder. They're used to work reviews where they get their next bonus and their raise. They're used to banking their marriages and relationships based on what can we do for each other. They're used to raising kids to excel and to achieve. And so we live in a culture and mentality that says, what is it that I can do? What is it that I can accomplish? So for you to tell somebody that it's nothing you can do without Jesus Christ, you are destined to eternity in hell, people don't want to hear that. So Philip had to help Nathaniel come to grips to leave the security of his fig tree and to find a greater security in his Savior. Dependent on someone else or something else, we would say there's just not a chance, but we must pray that God will go before us and prepare the heart of an individual so that God would use our words to encourage their heart and bring them to a place of meeting Jesus. So let's strive to love people into belief. Don't try to argue people into belief. That's an interesting thought because some of us are very combative in our nature. We want to just argue until we prove our point. But sometimes you just have to stop and you have to love them and smile at them and say, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to keep praying for you. And you give it to God. 
Because here's the third excuse or the third lie that we see. I have to make them believe. It's up to me. I have to make them believe. But the gospel devours this lie from the very first letter of this sentence because it's not about us. What a burden we carry when we think that it's all on our shoulders to make God's grace happen in people's lives. You see, Jesus sees Nathanael coming and he says, Behold, there is an Israelite in whom is no guile. The word guile there means deceit, um, deception. So he's saying that this is a man of honesty. This is a, good, a man of good report. So Jesus is going to demonstrate his omniscience and his omnipresence, his all-knowing omniscience and his all-present being everywhere. That's omnipresence. So these two attributes of God, which when you study through the book of John, as we're seeing here in chapter number one, the purpose of the book of John is for John to allow the words of Jesus to prove that he is God in man form. So right away in chapter number one, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we find that even in the very beginning in creation of the world, as God spoke the world into existence, all three part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, was there when the world was created. So this Jesus man now is showing Nathaniel that he is all-knowing and all-present. When he says, there's an Israelite indeed whom is no guile, Jesus is demonstrating this, yet another proof that he is God. How do you know me? Have you ever been in that situation? Somebody walks up to you, Peter Grant, look at you. Hey, buddy, yeah. Now, if I call you buddy, that doesn't mean I don't know your name, all right? It's just brother, okay? So, hey, buddy, yeah, man, good to see you. It feels like it's been like, oh, man, yeah, two weeks. Okay, yeah, two weeks, man. And you're like, oh, how do I know this guy? How do I know this person? You've all been there before, and, uh, and it's difficult, right? Kyle, you wait on tables at Abuelos. People come in all the time. They're like, Kyle, good to see you again. You're like, oh, I don't know this guy. I don't know. He's looking for special treatment, right? By the way, Kyle will bring you some chips and salsa to die. So, Nathaniel Abuelos. And uh, too many chips. No, who am I kidding? Bring them. All right, keep bringing them up. So Nathaniel realizes at this moment, he's in the presence of God, the Son of God. And he confesses him and believes in him. And Jesus responds with such great words of affirmation. Look at verse number 50. Jesus answered and said unto him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? <laughs> he says, is this why you're going to believe in me? Just because I... I, I said, you were under a fig tree and I saw you. He said, buddy, hang on because you are going to see greater things than these. And Nathaniel buckled up and he saw some incredible things that Jesus would do. So here's the answer to this lie. The gospel devours the lie that says, I have to make them believe. The answer is Jesus is the only way. Contrary to what Miss Oprah Winfrey wants to tell us, she says, quote, I believe there are many paths to God. I certainly don't believe there is only one way. There couldn't possibly just be one way to God. I believe that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Sadly mistaken, as she has an audience of millions around the world who will latch on to a quote like that. 
but we can simply take them to John 14, 6 and remind them that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Peter said in Acts chapter number 4, 12, remember Peter the coward? He denied Jesus Christ three times while he was being judged and put on the cross. And, and Peter became a coward and he, he lied and, and he ran. And, but then after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit empowered him, came into him and transformed his life, he became a man of great boldness, became a witness, a preacher. 3,000 plus were saved on the day of Pentecost. People's lives were being changed and transformed because the Holy Spirit was using Peter. And you find here that he says, neither is there salvation in any other. There, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now that's a hard message to digest. And you cannot pound that into people. It is not on your shoulders. It is not your responsibility. You pray the Holy Spirit goes before you and God draws them to themselves because Jesus is the only way. We find here that God had prepared a way for Nathaniel's eyes to be open. This was a time where, where there was another interesting fact about the fig tree. Because in the culture of that time, if you were sitting under your own fig tree, not just a fig tree, if you were sitting under your own fig tree, it was a sign of comfort and prosperity. So you think about Nathaniel sitting under his own fig tree. He's got security, he's got prosperity, and he has comfort. <laughs> Everything he would lose by following Jesus. Can you grab a hold of that? By Nathaniel saying, yes, I will follow after you. Yes, you are the son of God. Yes, I will leave it all behind and follow after you. He said, I'm willing to leave prosperity, comfort, and security. The church today could take a little side note from the disciples. There's so many negative things we like to point out about the disciples. Judas... He wasn't even a believer, burning in hell today, unfortunately. Then we look at Peter. He always was sticking his foot in his mouth. He always had things to say and, and uh, getting himself in trouble and uh, denied Christ three times. And then we look at Thomas, poor Thomas. He's labeled as doubting Thomas just because he wanted to see proof with his own eyes. Don't pretend like you would not have either. And so Thomas now has been labeled as the doubter. Philip, as we just studied, he was a little, oh, I don't know, this is a lot of people. There's no way we can feed them. Andrew said, How has, what is this among so many? So we, we like to think the disciples, they're so imperfect. And yes, they were. But that's how we relate to them. But the reality is, is you have to look at everything that they left behind to follow after Jesus and realize that they never went back. For these disciples going into the book of Acts, as the church became established and moved forward, these men were persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. They were imprisoned, they were beaten, and they were killed. They were martyrs for the gospel's sake. And so we look at these disciples as true heroes. We look at them as men who saw that it was only Jesus who mattered. In verse 51, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He uses king. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for a Messiah to come and free them from the, the Rome, uh, Roman Empire and the harsh rule and reign. They wanted somebody to come and free them politically and nationally and to have this freedom. 
So Jesus often would use this phrase as the son of man, emphasizing that he was not to be a military savior. He was not to be a a political force. He was simply coming to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is the one who brought Nathanael. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what we can say. We are not the way. It does not depend on us. God uses us, and that's a privilege. That becomes the whole realm of what we're talking about today, is don't say, well, it's all up to Jesus, so I'll just ride along and hope it all happens. No, because Jesus, God wants to use us. He's given us the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He says the second greatest commandment is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, love people. But he says not only the greatest commandment, but the greatest commission is for us to go and to tell others about Jesus. Remember that our goal is not to make a name for ourselves or to build some man-made legacy, but Jesus is the only name to remember. A little boy said, hey, Dad, did Grandpa make you go to Sunday school and church when you were my age? His father said, yeah, he sure did. We went every Sunday. And the boy said sadly, well, I bet it won't do me any good either. Hmm. It's not enough to just go to church. We must apply the Bible to our everyday lives. It's not a church attendance. It is church living. The called out believers to go and make a difference. So let's be that church. We gather, we worship, we rally, and we charge. But church, it is our time. So church, go.